0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles, the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I am your amazing and awesomely handsome host, Dylan, and joining me is the slightly less handsome but equally awesome, Corey Howard. Corey, say hi to everybody.
1: Wow, that is the nicest thing you've ever said to me. (laughs) Hey, everyone.
0: (laughs) Before we get started, I wanted to thank everybody who's tuning into the podcast today. If you do enjoy the podcast, we would love it if you went on to iTunes and left a positive review on there. That helps our uh, ability to be seen by other people. Uh, So if you do enjoy the show, please do leave a review on there. Also, if you would like to connect with us. You can see us on Facebook that is at Scripture Chronicles. The Facebook, again, is at Scripture Chronicles. Or you can email us. Email us your questions. Email us to say hi. Pretty much anything you want. The email address is Chronicles at gmail.com. With that, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's episode. Last week, if you uh, had tuned in, you will remember that we were chatting about Genesis 1. So we actually jumped into the text and started really looking at what it meant to read the Bible as a narrative if you would like to go back and jump into that episode if you hadn't caught that go ahead and do that this episode is going to be building a bit on the groundwork that we had laid in that episode uh just a general recap if you don't already know by now we are going through the bible as a story again in our very first episode we made the astonishing claim that the bible is a book and we are sticking to that claim meaning that cover to cover the bible is one single unified narrative, and if you pick it up and read it as such, you will notice the fact that it actually creates for you a narrative world. It creates for you a world that is cohesive, that builds on itself, that starts with a beginning, has a middle, a climax, and then a conclusion, an end that wraps everything up in a nice little bow. Yeah, that was actually a great recap. On a slightly
1: different note, Dylan, I went to visit your sister the other day, And uh, she asked why we had started this podcast. I noticed that a lot of great Bible podcasts don't just start from the beginning and work through the story. And I'm just excited that we are doing that and we've been getting the opportunity to do that. Because a lot of times when I hear other podcasts, I want to go back and hear about something they said in Genesis or Isaiah, but I can't find it because it's not just going through the book. But yeah, that's uh, exactly what we're doing and what I'm super excited about doing and continuing on. And then as far as actually starting the story, last week we got into the days of creation. God has um, a bunch of intention throughout. We saw that God structured the days of his creation where the first three days, he made settings, and the second three days, he filled those settings with characters, I guess you could say, with little creatures. And uh, we saw that the highlight of creation was that humans, man and woman, were made in the image of God, and that he blessed humans to be fruitful, multiply, and then gave them dominion. And we saw us as humans being connected to trees, that is, seed-bearing fruit. And at the end of it all, there is a seventh day where God rested and
0: there was no evening or morning. So jumping off of what Cordy said, humans are really connected to that idea of trees. I think that that is one thing that we didn't focus on quite enough last week. And we're going to be seeing how that plays into the story moving forward this week as we jump into Genesis 2. Now, if you remember last week, we... Ask the question, what being created in the image of God, what it, it meant, whether or not it was being created in God's image that is in the image of the divine trinity, or if that was being created in the image of God and the heavenly hosts, as some are inclined to believe. Now, we concluded after that discussion that it was, in fact, strictly speaking, that humans are created in the image of God and God alone. We are not created in the image of a host. Nowhere in the text does it suggest that we're created in the image of of any sort of spiritual being other than God, and we don't even know what it means to be created in the image of a host. Now, with that conclusion, we're going to be jumping into Genesis 2 today. We're going to be seeing how it connects to the story that's already unfolded with the with the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. And we're going to be seeing exactly what it means now for us as humans to have been created in God's image. Like Corey said, the very ending of last week, we ended with the idea that the very beginning of chapter two should ultimately be the ending of chapter one. We talked about the fact that Chapters and verses were added much later, and that that really plays into completing the seven-day creation story where on the seventh day God rested, he didn't create, he didn't even speak, but instead blessed, and that the the idea of there being morning and evening never uh, comes up in the text. And so as a result, we're still waiting in a sense for that day to end. Now, let's go ahead and jump into Genesis two and see how the story connects. So at the very beginning of Genesis two, that is verses one through three, we get the the imagery of the seventh day. Then starting from verse four, we're gonna go ahead and start now seeing how Chapter two really connects and builds on what chapter one has already laid down. So let's go ahead and start reading in verse four of chapter two. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. Now, I think before we jump into it too much, there's a very important point being made here, and that is that verse four plants us firmly into the narrative that's already been established in chapter one. So it's basically saying that as a result of chapter one, in the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth, this, the following narrative in chapter two, happened.
1: Wow, that's really cool, though. And I I say that's cool because I've heard people say that this, what you're calling is like a little recap of chapter one. You're saying it's building continuity, Whereas I hear other people say this is like a, a restart and it's kind of sloppy. It's almost taking different writings of Genesis accounts and just throwing them together. How do you say this builds continuity?
0: Uh, Yeah, that's actually a good point. So a lot of people are are, uh, inclined to say that there's actually two creation narratives. So there's the creation narrative in chapter one that we've read last week, and then all of a sudden chapter two starts out this entirely separate creation narrative. Now, the only reason that they say that is because there seems to be things that are different in chapter two from that which was described in chapter one. Now, as we're going to see, as we unpack chapter two, Those differences aren't differences as such, but instead they are things that the author is using to highlight particular characteristics of humanity, for example, or of the earth, for example, that were not used in chapter one because of the literary structure that he was using to establish the beginning of the narrative, but then starts to go into in chapter two. So basically, verse four is that bridge between the two where it's basically saying, "Okay, now that we've established the general outline of things, let's get a little bit more detailed. So like Corey said, that is building that continuity. It's not jimmy rigging a whole nother narrative underneath the narrative that's already happened in chapter one.
1: Yeah, I think your explanation just makes a lot more sense.
0: If we believe that the Bible is a cohesive narrative, it makes sense that the Bible would be building on itself as a narrative. For example, using the Lord of the Rings books that we've been using for the past few episodes, if you read The Fellowship of the Ring, Every passage in the Fellowship of the Ring builds on the passages that came before it to build a cohesive narrative. It doesn't make sense to say that some redactor came back later and added this because it doesn't quite make sense. No, the Lord of the Rings was obviously written in such a way that it builds a narrative world. And so too with the Bible. And so that is something that we firmly believe. It's not that it is spliced together to form some hodgepodge All right, so let's go ahead and start reading in verse five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Now, some translations will say creature. That is better translated as living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. That's important. The garden is in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man who he had formed. So there he'd put Adam, who he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Awesome, so there's a whole bunch going on here. Before we move too far into the narrative, let's go ahead and unpack a little bit of what's going on here. Corey, what are you seeing? It is interesting how we talked
1: about chapter two almost sounds like a recreating because it's talking about a time when there was no bushes um, or plants on the ground yet, even though we read about that happening in day three. And then something really interesting happens where God takes man out of the dust of the ground and then breathes his life into his nostrils. That's just really cool and really weird. What do you make of that?
0: Yeah, so I think there's a whole bunch of things going on here. So let's start out with the bush and the fact that it was created in day three with all of the different plants that were created. But all of a sudden in chapter two, we get this idea that, well, no bush had been formed yet. What are we we talking about? So uh, if you remember from last week, when we were talking about the idea that the author had created for us a narrative structure that he was using to advance his theology, he was using it to advance his main meaning. And so we saw that in the fact that each of the First three days of creation corresponded then to the last three days of creation in such a way that it creates this structure. Day one corresponds to day four, day two corresponds to day five, and day three corresponds to day six. So it creates the stage and then the actors on the stage, if you will. Now, in a similar sense, the author is actually setting up something crazy here that we're going to be seeing eventually as we move through the text, and that is he is creating for us a dramatic irony. So the biblical authors are nothing if not masters of literature insofar as they use the entire gamut of human ability to communicate through writing. They use poetry, they use narrative, story, They use things like comedy and drama and, in this case, irony. So the irony comes in the sense that basically chapter 2 and, as we'll see, chapter 3 really correspond with one another. The author is basically pulling out things that are different now, that is in Eden, in the good state, than they will be after the fall. So, for example, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, what is one of the things that God curses man with? He curses man with thorns and thistles that will plague you as you work the land. There's an ironic reversal. So no bush of the the field had yet sprung up in the good Edenic state. But then after the curse, thorns and thistles will plague you. No rain had yet descended on the ground, but after the curse, we're going to see that God actually uses rain as a destructive force. So he mm-hmm. uses rain to judge human sinfulness and depravity. Then man is formed from the dust and the curse from dust. You Came and to dust you will return. So it's really this ironic reversal of the way things were and then the way things become as a result of the curse. And that is really what the author is trying to get at here. It's not that two stories are being jimmy rigged together, but instead, once again, the author is using the literary structure of this to showcase something. In this case, use a a little bit of irony.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. So, like, I guess to sum that up, well, chapter one is. Being put together to show us the different things we talked about, like humans or trees. If you guys didn't pick up on last week, all you need to know is humans or trees. But what you sound like you're saying is chapter two is not something just put in there. It's intentional to bridge from chapter one into the following story. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. I'm seeing it. And the way that you're describing it and summing it up, it all of a sudden turns from me wondering, why did the author do it this way? And I I think what you're doing a helpful job for us in doing is, what if I just look for the author's intention and instead of questioning him? Like, why didn't he do it my way? Just asking the question is like, okay, why did the author choose to do it this way? And I think when we start choosing to do it that way, we, we see these things you're talking about, like, oh, yeah, look at him bridge the gap from this structure he made in chapter one to chapter three, or even to chapter six with the flood. And I'm sure we'll see
0: throughout the story. The author really does bring this continuity to bear. As we talked about last week with the quote from John Salehammer, the author in Genesis one, well, first off, we should probably predicate this with the fact that we do believe that the author of Genesis one is the author of the entirety of Genesis and the entirety of the Torah as a whole. So the first five books of the Bible do have continuity and authorship. With that, it makes sense then to say that, of course, the author is building a story for us. With the quote from John Sailhammer that we learned from uh, last week, the idea then is that, The author is actually trying to showcase Sinai, that is Exodus 19 and on, as the high point of the entire Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible. And that he is trying to draw continuity between the God who created the world with the God that the Israelites are then meeting at Sinai. So he's setting this narrative up such that it introduces God and it introduces our relationship to that God, and then it introduces the main tension of the story, and that is the fall. So basically, why are we here now at Sinai? Well, this is the history that led you up to this point. So it makes a lot of sense then that there is continuity in the narrative thus far, and there will continue to be continuity in the narrative.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. Even just you know, so far, say the bushes being put right next to the story about man being created in chapter two. I'm I'm sure about to see a lot of ways in which the garden of Eden directly relates to things that come out of that Sinai covenant. And so I, I guess we should just keep moving on. And so God makes the garden of Eden or he planted a garden in Eden, right? So there's Eden, that's something that you were stressing, Dylan. You're saying that there's Eden and then there's a garden in Eden. And then God puts man there. And then he says, in the midst of the garden were these two trees, or I guess another way of saying that is in the middle of the garden are two trees. So Dylan, what's significant about this structure, even the way that they're talking about Eden?
0: It is really important that the author actually says the garden in Eden in this case. As a matter of fact... This is the only place in the Torah where the garden, instead of being referred to as the Garden of Eden, is referred to the Garden in Eden. Now, the importance comes in the respect that we have this three-part depiction of the garden. So we have Eden as a general location. Then we have a garden that is actually in Eden. Eden. So the garden and Eden aren't the same thing. Eden is a location that has a garden in it. And then on top of that, we have the middle of the garden as another location So you have Eden, the garden in Eden, and then finally the trees that are planted in the midst or at the center of the garden. And now this three-part location series where you have a big section and then a slightly smaller section and then the middle section is really indicative of something else in the Bible. You got me thinking about Sinai. It sounds like the tabernacle, which is then like the temple. Exactly. It is just like the tabernacle. So, if you think about the tabernacle, the tabernacle is set up in such a way where you have the outer courts. Then, as you move your way inward, you have the holy place and then the most holy place. And now, the most holy place we will come to find is the place that the Israelite priesthood is set to actually meet face to face with God. So, in the same vein, then, the author here is actually creating a connection between these two narratives where the Garden of Eden is being set up as a temple. Basically, you have the outer courts, Eden, the Garden in Eden, that would be the holy place, and then the most holy place, which would be the center of the garden where the tree of life is located. In verse 9, we see an out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. So like we were talking, the garden in Eden is set up as a sort of temple. So man is going to be put into this garden, right? You have Eden, the garden in Eden, and then the tree at the center, that's the tree of life. And also the tree of knowing good and bad. So there's actually two trees at the center. And we're going to go ahead and pause and camp here for a second and kind of unpack what the heck these trees are in relation to the understanding now that we have that this garden in Eden is actually being set up as a temple. So if you remember, I talked about the tabernacle as having three parts and the most holy place, the part at the center is the place where the Israelite priesthood is going to be set to meet face to face with God. So if this is true, that Eden is being set up as a temple, like the narrative would suggest, that means the tree of life and the tree of knowing good and bad are going to have something to do with that. Now, Corey, let's go ahead and unpack that a little bit. What do you think of the tree of life and the tree of knowing good and bad?
1: Man, it's so interesting the way that the text continues to talk about it, skipping down the text. But verses 16 and 17, God allows man to eat of any tree of the garden, but not of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You know, it's really interesting thing. So clearly, they're allowed to eat of the tree of life. It is what God is. We just saw God bring life to a place where there was no life and there was chaos, right? And so the interesting thing, though, is that he says, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and bad. But yet, even in those commands, God tells them, hey, guys, it's good to eat of any tree. It is bad to eat of this tree. So it it seems to be a decision of, do you want to trust in my speaking from god's point of view do you want to trust in my knowledge of what is good and bad or do you want to take the helm for yourself and do you want to define what is good and bad in your own eyes which is actually a huge theme throughout the rest of the scripture
0: Anytime it is mentioned in scripture that humanity did what was right in their own eyes, for example, in Judges, you are, as the reader, immediately supposed to assume that things are very, very bad. Doing what is right in your own eyes is always a bad image in scriptures. In contrast, anytime humanity seeks God or anytime God proclaim something good, or anytime God sees what is good, then you're supposed to be led to believe, wow, this is actually what the good is. And so with these two trees, like Corey said, you do get with the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, this picture that ultimately, if you eat of this, you will be basically saying that I wish to define good and evil on my own terms, good and bad on my own terms. And so the tree then of of knowing good and bad is, well, as we'll come to see, the tree that humanity is commanded not to eat of. Now on the flip side of that, there's the tree of life. Now the tree of life, it does not have any such command that you're not supposed to eat of it. As a matter of fact, it's assumed and suggested even that this is the tree that you should eat of. So eat of all the other trees in the garden, but this one in particular, there's something special about it and you should eat of it. Now, the specialness of this tree, I really think comes from the fact that first off, we are led to assume this tree is special because it's placed in the center of the garden. So again, if this is a picture of the most holy place in the temple, the tree being at the most holy place would be special. But not only that, if the tree is placed at the center, and the center of a temple is the place where you meet with God, the tree is probably typological and indicative of God's presence, meaning that when you eat of the tree of life, you are actually, in a very real sense, participating in God's life.
1: Yeah, this order of importance, the trees in the middle are what the whole story carries around. Now, Obviously, God mentions that there's other trees and all the other trees you can eat of are good, but he doesn't pay any attention to olive trees or mango trees. He's saying, focus on these trees almost like they are characters. And in these characters, you could essentially be choosing life or you can choose death. And so... Out of this, you can assume that if God is giving people a tree of life, that means without
0: the tree of life, they would die, right? That does seem to be the case. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about the often typical Christian assumption that humans are created inherently immortal. As a matter of fact, the narrative seems to be suggesting something completely different. Now, if we do assume that this tree is typological of God's divine life. When humanity eats of it, we'll come to see this in, in chapter three, so spoilers, the tree of life is actually the means by which humans participate in God's life and as such receive eternal life for themselves. So by Eating of the trees in the garden, particularly the tree of life, humans actually gain life. It is an image of humans living in perfect unity with God, such that God's life is given to the humans, because the humans are created as mortal creatures of the dust and then given life through participation in the divine life of God. So let's go ahead and move into the next section of the story, and we'll kind of continue to unpack this idea. And again, remember, we are analyzing all of this as it pertains to what it means to be created in the image of God. So, so far, what we have is that Genesis chapter 2 is really explaining a continuation of chapter 1. Chapter 1 ends with this idea that humans are created in the image of God, and then God rests, and designates the seventh day as holy. And it is assumed then that if we are in the image of God, we should have something about us that is qualitatively different. Now, in chapter two, it talks about us being created from the dust of the earth. Well, all of a sudden, we are created as something that isn't so divine, isn't so special. Dust of the earth is not what you would expect something that is created in the image of God to be created out of. So we're already left with this paradoxical, okay, we're in the image of God from chapter one, but we're created out of the dust of the earth. We are created as mortals in this world. And then we are called to participate in the divine life through the eating of every tree in the garden, particularly the tree of life. So by participating in the eating of the tree of life, we're participating in the divine life of God and then given eternality as a consequence. That's a good
1: consequence. It says a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die.
0: So Corey, in in this section, what do you think is, is transpiring?
1: Well, first of all, It's an interesting little break in the action from verses ten to fourteen, but it seems like he's setting out more setting, right? It's like I mean he even talks about these rivers that I'm sure weren't named it, and he even talks about countries like Assyria, who we know doesn't come into existence until Nimrod establishes it, I think in chapter four. So it's interesting that we're we're talking about setting here.
0: I definitely would agree that there is some setting going on here. I think that there is not only setting going on here, however. I think that in addition to the author actually creating for us the setting of Eden, he is also once again drawing back to that Edenic temple imagery that we had just talked about. So for example, it talks about the river flowing out of Eden to the water of the garden and there dividing became four rivers. And then it jumps in says it is the one, so talking about the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. That's a statement of fact. And also there's onyx and other precious stones there. Well, what is a general category of the temple, as we will come to see? It is, in fact, a place that is shined head to toe with gold and other precious stones. It is described as one of the most ornate and beautiful buildings that the world had ever known at that point. This is drawing a connection, in my opinion again, to that imagery that this is in fact a temple. So Eden, again, you have that three stage, the outer courts, inner courts, inner sanctum. Uh, And then you have this narrative talking about the rivers that are showcasing the gold and the precious stones. And then it is also presenting a setting. It really focuses on the rivers that are a bit more questionable at first and explains them a little bit more. So the Pishon, and then it talks about the Gihon, the rivers that would have been a little bit more well known, especially to the Israelites who eventually inherit the promised land that are also defined by these two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. It doesn't spend much time talking about them at all. Now, jumping into verse 15, we really get into kind of the crux of what it means to be created in the image of God as the author sees it. so in verse 15 in your English Bible, it'll probably say something along the lines of the Lord, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. So the God, so God took Adam, that is man. And he put him in Eden. That is the delightful place to work it and keep it. Now, those are probably the two words, work it and keep it. I guess it's four words that your Bible will probably contain. Now, this is where we would probably diverge from your typical English translation and propose something that might be brand new to you and a little wonky. So again, referencing our good friend, John Sailhammer, the amazing late professor who really taught on things like hermeneutics, approaching the Bible as a narrative, etc. He proposes that The better translation of this verse, instead of saying the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, he proposes that it should instead read the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to worship and obey. Now, we're not going to get into the linguistics as to why he suggests this, But it makes much more sense of the narrative, particularly if you remember that the author here in chapter two is really setting up a ironic reversal of events with what's going to transpire in chapter three. So again, we already saw in the very beginning of chapter two, so there's no bush of the field. Well, again, that is referencing The thorns and the thistles that are going to start plaguing humanity after the curse? Ironic reversal. No rain had yet descended on the ground. Well, in chapter 6, the rain comes as a plague and kills humanity. Ironic reversal. Man was formed out of the dust of the earth. From dust you came, and to dust you will return. Ironic reversal. And so once again, what the author is actually doing is showcasing an ironic reversal. Man was put into the garden in verse 15 to worship and obey Ironic reversal being then that, as a result of the curse and the fall, humanity was actually cursed to then work the ground. It wouldn't make sense with this motif of ironic reversal to have it say that man was put into the garden to work it and keep it, and then the ironic reversal being that man is set to work and keep the ground. So the ironic reversal then is that humans actually were set into the garden to worship and obey. And in essence, if the garden is a temple, they were placed in the garden to be priests.
1: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Even in the tabernacle instructions, it'll go in and out of talking about the duties of Aaron and his sons. And at, at the end of a section, it will say something like, And the garments of Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. So Aaron and his sons are constantly being prepared for their service as priests, which is to worship God in the tabernacle and to obey, and especially the priests above their fellow Israelites to obey and cover the sins of fellow Israelites as they disobey, right?
0: Yeah, and so what's crazy then is if humans are placed in the garden as priests, like we're suggesting here, and Eden is in fact a temple, and the tree at the middle of the garden, that is the tree of life, is a tree indicative and representative of God's divine life which humans are invited to participate in by their oral eating of this fruit, then ultimately the picture of what it means to be created in the divine image starts to take form such that humans were created to worship God in this State where they are actually sharing in the life of God, receiving in eternality through the participation in his divine life, and all they need to do in return is to worship God and obey him that's the state of humanity at its its essence at its most perfect and something else that I would like to touch on that we we haven't touched on yet with regard to the tree of life that is is the fact that so the tree of life we've already established is a picture of God's divine life. And by participating in the the action of eating the fruit, you are participating in God's life and receiving eternality. I think that there's something really cool that I'd like to throw out there, and that is that we'll see that this imagery comes back up again and again, and then culminates in the Christian understanding of communion. So the Christian ultimately is going to be called to receive the cup and receive the bread, as a participation in Christ's divine life. Do this in remembrance of me, because this is my blood and this is my body. By participating in it, you are participating in Christ and his blood and his body. And so the oral ingestion then of the body and the blood in that sense finds its roots here. in the oral ingestion of the fruit of God's divine life of the tree of life that's at the center of the garden, just a cool sidebar.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, Jesus does call himself the life and the resurrection life in the book of John. And he his biggest upset message he ever preaches is when he tells people, If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me And people are like, Uh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on that <laughs> But yeah, that, that makes sense, those uh continuities.
0: Yeah, it it blew my mind when I first came across that. That was absolutely amazing. So with that, we have this picture of humans as priests. We have this image of humans as mortals who are participating in the divine life. And then in verse 15, we have this image of humans being placed in the garden and told, you are here to worship and obey. And immediately after the word obey, we get the first command.
1: Yeah, I mean... It's the one that I just read. It was in verse 16 and 17. Again, just so it's fresh in your minds of the listener. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and bad you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now in the last chapter where God says he blesses them, them, that is the humans, He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And he gave dominion to them. That sounds like a command, but it's actually a blessing. So this is really the first command of the Bible. And so in this command, you say, do this, like that is eat of any tree. And not one tree is focused on, but eat like there, there is a multitude to choose from. And then there's this one tree that happens to be in the middle of the garden. Do not eat of that. And there's a consequence, which there usually are in just about every other command place um, where we see God commanding humans. And so if, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die, right? And so it, it goes back to a little bit what we were alluding to earlier God is facing humans with a choice right? So at the, the middle of the garden, at, at the center of our lives is this question, am I going to trust and obey, or maybe I should say to worship and obey God and his commands, or am I going to do what I think is best in my own eyes, right? And it, and it seems so silly, especially if as we lay out the book of Genesis. It's like, why would anyone choose something other than God. But yet we do this all the time with just silly things. And so this, the fact that it's so black and white, you, you might as well be saying, do you think that you can improve on perfection? If if God is perfect and he gives perfect rules and you decide to do something different than what God laid out, then you, you pretty much think that you are wiser or of better judgment than the perfect God. Um, And it just sounds so silly. And it seems like it's not that huge of a deal. At least I go back and look and I was like, why would anyone distrust this God? But yet in, in this command lays out the big conflict that sets off the rest of the story. And not only in the story of you know, the words of the Bible, but really our lives each moment day by day, we say, all right, am I going to obey and worship God? Or am I going to do something that I think is better? Am I going to do what's right in my own eyes? And that's, that seems to me what this command is coming down to. Uh
0: Yeah, I agree that it really does. The, the reason that these two trees are talked about as both in the middle of the garden is it really represents this choice between choosing the divine life, opting to trust God, to worship and obey. That's the only thing you have to do and to have faith. Or instead, would I like to take of this other tree, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, and in a sense, take good and bad into my own hands, define it for myself like Corey said. And that really is the crux of the issue that we're going to then see as a result uh, and a consequence of the humans participating in this tree that is the tree of the knowledge of good and bad and deciding that they wish to define good and evil for themselves. Eventually, we're gonna get to a point that things are so skewed that everything that the humans strive for is bad. And everything that is good is that which is shunned by the humans. And so again, going along with this ironic reversal of circumstances, the humans are set up as priests. They only need to worship and obey God. And to do that, all they need to do is enjoy him and participate in eating of the trees, in loving the garden that he's put him in, in loving him, and then participating in his divine life through the tree of life. And instead, they opt to shun that, and we'll get into the rest of the story from there,
1: Yeah, let's keep going in verse 18. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Wow, this is interesting.
0: Yeah, a whole lot goes into this. It's interesting to me. I don't know about you, Corey, but immediately after God says the command of don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's implied that the reason you shouldn't eat of that tree is because I, God, know what is right for you and know what is wrong for you. Immediately after that, God then makes a judgment call and says, it is not good that man should be alone.
1: Yeah, it- it's so cool. I mean, this is actually the the first thing in all of creation that God says is not good. So far, God creates something on a day and then says it's good, right? And even at the end of the sixth day, he says it was all very good. Good, good. and <laughs> Good, good. Um, and so you're almost left with this idea if, if you don't take all that into account that how will man— and women know what is truly good from bad but you see god like you're saying making judgments right he says this is good and here's something not good and in order to remedy it i will make him something good a good helper right so yeah it implied god is going to lead them and implied god is going to help with anything that is not good by here at least, making a helper.
0: Yeah, and so this now leads us back to chapter one. So if you remember from chapter one, it says that God created man and woman in the image of God. He created them male and female. And up until this point in chapter two, we have been dealing with Adam, man. But that's not man in the humanity sense. That's man in the Adam, the person sense. And so this then is the first time we get the, creation of that woman. Now, prior to the creation of the woman, it's important to note that God notices that it's not good, that man is alone. And so he allows for Adam, Adam, to name the animals. Now, if you remember what I talked about a little bit earlier, it was the idea that Adam being created from the dust of the earth really brings humanity down to a material earthly level. So if in reading verse, or excuse me, chapter one, we got this assumption that humans were in some sense divine, chapter two squashes that real quick. It says, no, if you thought humans were divine, you're absolutely wrong. That's not what it means to be created in the image of God. Instead, humans are mortal. Humans are dust. They are created from the earth and they are creatures in a certain sense. But here then the author continues that thought and says even though they're created from the dust they are so much more than that moreover they are more than the animals adam's naming of the animals is indicative of his authority over the animals god puts the earth under adam's feet in uh, chapter one where he talks about them having dominion over it and here is a perfect example of what that means. Humans have authority over the animals. He is able to name the animals, which is a very significant fact, particularly in Hebrew literature. uh, It might not be so important to us now as Westerners where names aren't quite as important, where names don't declare facts. Uh, But in a Hebrew context, this would have been very important. And then moreover, after Adam had named the animals, it was found that there was no helper suitable among the animals, meaning that there was something categorically different about Adam than about these animals. So Adam, in a very real sense, was different other than and greater than the other animals. So that really goes along with our theme from last week, I think, where humans are being shown as the pinnacle of creation. You remember I used the big word, anthropocentric to describe chapter one. Again, in a very real sense, chapter two is very anthropocentric. Humans are the pinnacle of this creation, and there is something special that's going to be taking place around these characters. These characters are the characters that we're supposed to be paying attention to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting as you're saying, and just to sum up your thoughts I'm hearing from you is, men and women, humanity was made in the image of God, super high point you're given dominion over everything and then he says you're made of the dust of the earth just like everything else was it's like oh wow that's uh humbling us really mortal and then we get a different idea of what we might have thought whatever presuppositions we might have thought being made in the image of god was and then we see god's intentions with it right so people adam go ahead and name everything right? You have dominion over this creation, over these animals, so name them, right? And that that goes back to the blessing of chapter 1 that starts in verse 27. And so people, being made in the image of God does not mean we are spirit. It doesn't mean we are divine. In being very much mortal, then, we have to shift our understanding of what it means to be made in the image of god and and we just go back to the things that god has done so far and then the things he has shared with humanity is god creates and rules over his creation then he says all right humans be fruitful and multiply and create life well we get to make life like god and then he says have dominion over these things like i am the god who clearly has power over everything I want to share that power with you, which is insane. And as the biblical story goes on, we actually see that God does almost nothing on his own, meaning that God always shares his responsibilities or what he's doing with the human agent, which means that there's always chance that the human agent can completely mess things up. Spoiler alert. That's what Adam and Eve do in the next chapter. But he desires to rule with humans, and I I think that has got to be a major component that comes to our minds when we think of what it means to be made in God's image.
0: Like you said, humans are created mortal. They are not divine beings. I think that that is something that the author is really trying to stress, particularly with regard to the fact that humans are dependent on God's life for that divine eternal life that they are going to experience. And that's really indicated in the, the divine command that God gives. You can eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, why will they die? They'll die because they will be cut off from God's life and therefore they're mortal. Of course they'll die. Makes complete sense. Now, in addition to that, it is also striking that up until this point, we are seeing Adam on the scene. That is Adam, one human creature. But again, in chapter one, we saw that humans were created in the image of God as male and female. So here then we finally get what we were expecting the entire time. We had Adam on the scene. He names the animals showing his dominion over the animals, his otherness from the animals. A helper was not found among the animals because he's other than them. Therefore, God sees it as good to create for him a helper from him, namely woman. So he brings the woman out of Adam. And then this is really interesting. We didn't talk about this yet, but in verse 23, we get a shift in the type of literature that we are reading. So up until verse 23, what we are reading is narrative. That is it is a cohesive story that reads just like any other story. But all of a sudden, verse 23 shifts the literary genre, if you will, to poetry.
1: It almost seems like it's to emphasize. Yeah?
0: Yeah, exactly. So you'll notice that this is actually a theme that we'll run into quite a few times in our reading of the biblical text, is that the author will often switch from narrative to a short stanza of poetry to emphasize something, just like you said, Corey. You'll notice that it's poetry by the fact that almost all of your English translations will have this particular section as indented and then kind of stanza off as though it was poetry. And it really does emphasize a key point. Verse 23 emphasizes woman's creation, insofar as humanity is not complete in the image of God without female and male together. Together, they are the image of God. In a sense, they're two halves of a whole. Marriage.
1: Marriage <laughs> is why we are gathered today. <laughs> Obviously, super important. And we pick up on it and the, the author says, hey, look at I'm changing the type of literature on you. And we get this beautiful poem. And then we get after that verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Yeah, so man and woman together reflect the image of God. And we have to be careful to say that, you know, me as a man, I'm not in the image of God without my wife. That's overstepping what he's saying. But in that man and woman make up two halves of a whole is, you know, what we're trying to say here, um, and just the fact that in marriage, this is such a key thing that God and in God's image of what He gives as marriage is that man and woman come together as one flesh, right? And so they're bonded for life. They're they're partners forever and this is something that we see throughout the rest of scripture as marriage being a really important covenant among people we see god talk about himself as the husband to israel he uses that image constantly Uh, chapter 2 verse 24 is quoted a bunch of times in the new testament and when paul quotes this verse in ephesians he actually says do you not know that I take this to be talking about Christ and the church back when God introduces the idea of marriage. So we see that this idea of marriage is doing far more than just procreating It's doing far more than just showing your partner love. It is showing something fundamental and foundational to the character of God and, and who he is and the way in which he relates to his covenant
0: people. Do you agree with that, Dylan? I do. I do have a slightly different reading, perhaps, of chapter 2, verse 24. Not in, ultimately, the what it's saying, but more so in the idea of becoming one flesh. So, when I read this, this verse, it really seems important to me that the becoming one flesh is referencing that connection of halves. So you have man and woman together being the image of God. And when they come together and hold fast to one another, so the husband holds fast to his wife, they become one whole flesh and they are together, ultimately the image of God. And again, like Corey said, that's not to say that a individual is not created in the image of God without the other gender. That's that like Corey says, oversteps the text a bit, but together they do and are able to reflect the image of God, they are created such that there is two of them reflecting the image of God, and that is what's good. It's not good necessarily to be alone, but instead together to be the image of God. And then finally in verse 25, we get this odd statement that we'll come back to next week. And it says, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they're not ashamed so we're going to come back to that next week as the link between chapter 2 and chapter 3 one brief note that i wanted to make that i thought was very interesting is actually the hebrew word naked here is different than the hebrew word for naked in chapter 3 verse 7 and the hebrew word for naked in 3 7 Neither neither Hebrew word appears very often in Torah, but the one in 3.7 does appear in Deuteronomy when it's talking about the Israelites being judged. Basically, the idea then is that the nakedness that is experienced here in verse 25 is not a nakedness of judgment, but instead one where, like the text says, they're not ashamed. It is a good state that they are in. But as soon as naked is introduced in chapter three, verse seven, all of a sudden it's a nakedness of judgment. So it implies judgment is on them and they know when they recognize that they are naked, that they are then under judgment because they have broken that command that we talked about today. So that's where we're gonna end for today as far as our reading of the text. To sum up then, what we have talked about thus far, because there was a lot in today's podcast. Ultimately, chapter two really explains what it means to be created in the image of God. And the main points, the main takeaways, if you will, of what it does mean to be in the image of God is humans are created such that they are able to have a sharing in the divine life. They're able to participate in God's life through the participation in the fruit of the tree of life at the center of the garden. They are placed in a Edenic temple. That is Eden is a temple with God at the center of it in the image of the tree of life. They are invited to participate in God's life and to be priests, to worship and to obey. Moreover, they are commanded not to assume that they should know what is good and bad for themselves, but instead to rely on God's understanding of good and bad for himself. They're created, like we saw from last week, in the same way that trees are created, where they bear fruit, they have seeds, they are basically created such that they are able to create life just as God is able to create life, although on a slightly lesser scale, they're not divine, because they're created as mortals from the ground, but they do share in God's life, which allows them eternality and allows them to participate in the priestly duties that they're given. And it allows them to actually worship and obey. Like I said, from last week, the divine life includes their connection with God in this weird tree, like metaphor. So, Like Corey was talking about last week, humans are shown to be like trees, but then God is also shown to be, in a sense, like a tree with the tree of life that's placed at the center of the garden. And that's not to say that humans are God, but in as much as humans are in the image of God, humans are like trees, and God is kind of like a tree. And that's going to be an image that we're going to see come up. Corey, what do you think of that?
1: Yeah, that's so right on as to um, how God will be described and actually really how the Messiah will be talked about in the prophets especially but yeah so this is going to become something that is super important both that god is going to be talked about being like a tree throughout the rest of scripture in the prophets the messiah is going to be promised as a tree or parts of trees tons of times Um, and people are going to be continued to be talked about like trees throughout scripture throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. Um, And so if this isn't finding too much um, semblance now, like you're not seeing so much um, connections in the first couple chapters, um, we're just really wanting to, to pound this drum because it will become very important. And the connections all are started here in the first couple chapters. So we're just trying to highlight the things that are gonna be very prominent later on And, of course, that are in the text themselves. And so I guess if you're not seeing it in some ways, um, continue to look through these patterns for yourself. And I guarantee you will start seeing these jump off the page at you.
0: So, again, to sum up, humans are created in, in the image of God. They are created to be like a tree. They are created to be priests in the garden, to worship God, to obey God. They are called to be participants in the divine life. They are not divine. God is like a tree. They're like a tree. They're worshipers of God. They're obeying God's commands to do what is good and shun what is evil. And God tells them not to try to do that on their own, to continue to rely on him for that. And they're created as male and female, meaning that in a sense, they are two halves of a whole, two parts of the image of God. And so that is really... Where we're going to leave off for chapter two, jumping in next week into chapter three, we're really going to see how that plays out. And unfortunately, we're also going to enter the big problem of the story. So that's all the time we have for today. Let's go ahead and wrap up here. We'd like to thank all of you guys for listening to the podcast. Once again, if you would like to connect with us, you can find us on Facebook at Scripture Chronicles, or you can email us. That is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. Please do email us if you have any questions that you would like us to answer. Eventually, we will be doing a Q&A session on the show where we'd love to have a bunch of your guys' questions that we can then answer. If that is something that you would like to do, please do email us. And again, if you like the show, please do write a positive review on iTunes. That really does help us out. iTunes is the biggest podcast portal that is out there. We are on iTunes. We are on Podbean. And we are also on Google Play Podcasts. We are going to be jumping on Spotify here soon. So look for us there. And like I said last week, our website is in the works coming soon. It is going to have all of our podcasts in addition to a bunch of awesome resources that you guys can keep and get your hands on. So look out for that. With that, we'd like to thank you guys for tuning in and Lord bless you guys. Thank you guys. Have a good day.